So um, I do have that and pens. So if somebody needs a pen, we'll get you that as well. It looks like the clipboards have already been consumed and taken. So I don't see any in the box up here. There you go. Two, three, four. Yes, thank you. So kind. If you have a clipboard, you have to take a paper. That's yours, Evan. That's one. Do they want one? They could. I don't know. There you go, ma'am. Do you guys want one? It's just the passage we're working on. Just copy you. Is that what you said? Oh, yeah. Yep. Anyone else need an ink pen while I'm walking around? There you go. There you go. Yep. Do you need a pen? No. Oh, okay. Huh? I just saw it when I asked you. <clears throat> All right. So tonight's passage. Uh, we're going to give you about 10 minutes you to highlight, underline, circle, um, anything that stands out to you, uh, re- repetitive phrases. Um, if you notice a conversation taking place, uh, pay attention to or things that you find of interest in the text that would help you to understand the text better. Um, just kind of as you're reading through there, just start marking it up. If there's a phrase or something that you notice um, that reminds you of a different passage, So maybe in John 8, as you're reading through here, one of the verses, you think to yourself, that sounds a lot like this passage. Circle that, write the verse number right out there. Uh, That's what we mean by note it up. Just kind of make notes, make observations. Um, If you know things about the Gospel of John, maybe you'd make observations about that, about the character, or I mean the content of the Gospel of John, the type of Gospel that it is. Um, Different things like that. So just take a few moments, about 10 minutes, read through the text, take your time. And as you're reading through there, just go ahead and make notes, observations, um, and then we'll come back in 10 minutes and we'll kind of break the passage apart. All right, so go ahead and start on that and we'll come back in just a couple minutes.
want to finish the thought if you're writing still, and we'll dive in. Uh, let's begin with some basic observations. Usually when you're jumping into a, a passage, especially in one of the Gospels, it's uh, helpful to step back and look at the Gospel that you're in as a big picture. So uh, just quickly, what do we know about the Gospel of John? What's some unique thing? John wrote it. That's very good. Uh, yes, the Gospel of John was written by someone named John. That's a very great observation. Um, any other, maybe not quite as obvious, observations that we can make? What else do we know about the Gospel of John? Okay, it actually opens up by introducing that, right? That Christ is the Word of God, literally the, the mind of God, right? Taken on flesh, okay? So there's an emphasis there of that character of Christ. What else is unique about the Gospel of John compared to even Matthew, Mark, and Luke? When you think about the Gospel of John, there's some unique things about it compared to the other Gospels. Okay? Yeah. So there's a closeness between John and Christ. Okay? So when you read the Gospel of John, compare it to Mark or Matthew... Uh, all the Gospels record events of Christ's life, right? Jesus did this. He performed this miracle. He, he did this thing. He said these words. The Gospel of John is unique because it records these, some of these same events, but it gives us the behind the scenes. It gives us the conversations we don't read in other Gospels. Uh, the Gospel of John also records more about the crucifixion of Christ than the other Gospels. Um, the Gospel of John gives us more information about the upper room and what happened there. Um, the Gospel of, of John also gives us a lot of detail about what the Spirit is going to do, right? Compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John spends a lot of time sharing what Christ taught about the Holy Spirit and who the Holy Spirit was going to be. Um, also, we read in the Gospel of John the idea of that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. We see a clear understanding of what the gospel is. Uh, John, the gospel of John, is also a very black-white gospel. It, there's not a lot of gray. It's truth and it's error. It's life and it's death. And it's light and it's darkness. It's very back and forth with those things. Um, this is also the same John that wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation. So we see some of the same kind of bold truth Right? It's either right or wrong. There's no gray area in the Gospel of John. And so here we see this amazing declaration of Christ. So in this passage, we're going to see a declaration of Christ. And in this declaration, there's a few things in these nine verses or so that are going to tell us something about the character of Christ. So if you want to jot this down, that this is going to deal with the, the, the identity of Christ, rather. Not the, the character, too, but the identity of Christ, the mission of Christ and our need for forgiveness from Christ. So in this passage, we're going to see real clearly Christ stating and making statements about his identity, about his mission, and about our need for forgiveness. Who Christ is, what Christ came to do, and that we need to be forgiven by Christ. Um, and so again, we read this declaration in a conversation, in a back and forth. Okay, Now, who's the conversation taking place between? Jesus and who? Okay, the group of Jews, okay? Now, this could be a group of semi-believing Jews, religious leaders, right? There's, there's a little bit of a, a mixed group here as far as who he's speaking to. In that first verse, John 8, 21, I'm going to read just that first verse, and then we'll continue through verse 24 in just a moment. 
But John 8 and verse 21, Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and you shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whether I go, you cannot come. And so I made a point a little bit ago to say, as you're reading through this, if there's any other passages, any other verses that come into your mind as you're reading through here to jot those down. So as you read through verse 21, as you read those words of Christ, are any other verses coming to mind or another passage that maybe you're reminded of in what Christ said here? And I'll read it again. That's, then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way and you shall seek me and shall die uh, and shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, you cannot come. So another passage, maybe, it doesn't have to be from the Gospel of John, or it could, but just another passage in general that jumps out to you from the Word of God when you read this, this verse. Okay, the Last Supper. What, what brings the Last Supper to mind in, in that? Okay, yep. So, we, and actually, even in John chapter 14, Right? John chapter 14, verse 6. No man comes unto the Father but through me. Right? You need to have a relationship with Christ to get to the Father. So without me, you can't go to the Father. Right? Any other verses that come to mind? Okay? Yeah, we get, I mean, really all of Romans Road. Right? Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23. Right? We can compare those in there as well. That this idea of dying in your sins. What's that? That's okay. I knew what you meant. I knew what you meant. I got you. Um, so yeah, that idea of dying in our sins. So the sin that we die in carries a consequence. That's what Jesus was saying. What's the consequence of dying in our sin? We can't go where Jesus goes because we died in our sin. So we're not allowed access to where Jesus is going. Uh, any other verses jump out to you as you read through that first verse? Another I, uh, mentioning of this would be John chapter 4, right? Salvation is of the Jews. He was speaking to the woman at the well, and he was speaking specifically of himself. That salvation only comes through the line of the Jews through Christ. And he was answering the woman's question about what's the right place to worship. And he says to her, you worship, you don't even know. We worship what we know we worship, and the salvation comes from the Jews. And so again, this comparison of there's not many ways to get to God, there's one way, right? Another reference you can jot down, uh, when Jesus says there, I go my way, right above that phrase, you can write down John 7.34. John 7.34, one chapter over says, you shall seek me and shall not find me and, and shall not find me and where I am, thither you cannot come. So it's the same idea. You're going to seek after me, but you're not going to find me. And where I'm going, you can't come. Now, I wanted to kind of take a moment to do that because I'm, I'm always amazed at how Scripture works with Scripture. In one verse, I just jotted down for myself, one, two, three, four other passages. So one verse of scripture can lead me into four other verses and four other passages in a time of study. And I, I hope that as we go through God's word, this is what we're looking for. This is what we're hoping for God's word to do. We could just read through these nine verses and be done with our Bible study, right? We could read through these nine verses and go, oh, we're good. I get the idea, close the Bible and we're done. 
or we can really invest in each one of these verses and desire God to show us how it connects to other areas of Scripture and how the Word of God interprets the Word of God. Why is it we believe you need a relationship with Jesus Christ to go to heaven? Because Jesus said so. Not just in one case. Here's multiple cases where Jesus made this statement, this declaration. Let's read on um, through verse 24. So we'll read down through verse 24. So if I can get somebody to read verses 22 through 24 for me, that would be great. And then we'll kind of break it apart as we go. So verses 22 through 24. Who'd like to read that for us? Renee, awesome, thanks. Okay, so the first thing we have to note here is as we kind of already start unpacking from verse 21, Jesus goes where we cannot go naturally. Jesus is saying he's going to go somewhere where we cannot go naturally. And he makes it clear that our natural eternal state is separate from his eternal state. Wherever he's going to go for eternity, we are not able to go naturally. That there is a divide between us and him in our natural eternal state. We know from the rest of the Gospels and the New Testament that this is referring to heaven and hell. That in our natural state, fallen from grace, fallen from salvation, fallen from perfection, however you want to say it, we are divided. There's a divide. And where he's going naturally, because he is the Son of God into heaven, and where we go naturally into the eternal state of punishment in a place called hell, there is a great divide there. And he's making it clear that that is a distinction that needs to be noted. The Jews actually miss the point And when Jesus said this, they thought what? Go ahead. What did the Jews think? I guess what in my mind, I was wondering if they thought he told himself that he was going to go to hell. Okay, yeah. So they, they say what in verse 22? Will he kill himself? Because he said, where I go, you cannot come. So to the Jews, suicide is an abhorrent and unpardonable offense. This is why it's such a huge deal that Judas hung himself. This is why that's such a big issue, even in this culture. Again, to the Jews, that's an unpardonable offense. The person that actually committed suicide would be cast into a place of judgment. And obviously, they, as righteous Jews, could not follow. So Jesus makes this statement, where I'm going, you can't go. They go, well, he must be talking about committing suicide because if he does that, he's going to be cast into a place of judgment and we are righteous children of Abraham. We're righteous Jews who follow the law. We're not going into a place of judgment, so we can't follow him. That must be what he's referring to. And obviously, it doesn't take very long before you see the irony in this understanding because Jesus makes it clear that ironically that they are the ones that are going to be judged. That they're the ones that are going to be cast into a place of judgment. And why is it that they're going to be judged? Because they're going to die in their sins. Because they die in their sins, they will be separated from him. So they will actually be cast into a place of judgment where Jesus will not go. Now it's important to note this. In the Apostles' Creed, it actually says, and many, many, many churches for a long time have recited the Apostles' Creed. 
And the Apostle Creed is basically a statement of faith, a confession of faith, that shows similarities in uh, doctrine or belief that evangelical churches, that Christian churches can agree upon. And in the Apostles' Creed, it actually says that Jesus descended into hell, that he went into hell. And there are some that teach that Jesus had to go into hell and actually more or less pay for our sin in hell. He had to be three nights, three days in hell. But that's not actually what the Bible says. The Bible says that he went into Hades. Now, in Hades, we talked about this before, Hades is just the afterlife. And at this time, Hades was actually divided into two places. There was a place of hell and torment, and there was Abraham's bosom, which we read about in the Gospel of Luke, when Lazarus died and the rich man died, and Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom or with Abraham, and the rich man looks across a great divide. He's in flames being tormented, and Lazarus is not. Abraham's bosom is a place of paradise. This is also believed to be where the thief on the cross actually went when he died on the cross. Because Jesus doesn't say, you'll be with me this day in heaven. He says, you'll be with me this day in paradise. And that, that individual went to paradise until Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And when Jesus rose again, he took all of those in Abraham's bosom directly into heaven. That's why now Paul says that when we die, to be absent from the bodies, be present with the Lord. And so we now go right to heaven because the work of salvation is complete and finished. Anyone who died in faith in God in the Old Testament were in paradise waiting until the fulfillment of Christ. And so when this understanding of Jesus going to hell was beginning to be taught, some people think he had to go pay in hell for our sin, but that's not the case. He died on the cross for our sins. Payment was finished. He actually says it is finished when he died on the cross. So when Jesus went into Hades, he declared what he had done to those spirits and those that were in Hades, or the afterlife. But see, again here, these Jews thought, well, he must be going to a place of judgment, and that's why we can't go. But Jesus never entered into hell, never into a place of torment. He was not tormented by Satan in a place of fire because he is greater. He didn't have to succumb to Satan's will and power because he was greater than Satan. He died on the cross for our sins. That's how he paid the debt for sin. So here the Jews don't understand. They misunderstand the point. So Jesus clarifies in verse 23. And he said unto them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. So when he says you are from beneath, he means earth. You're earthen. You're human. You're, you're limited. You're a created being. He says, I am not of this world. This clear distinction that Jesus made of our origin of mankind and the origin of Christ or who Christ really is, is a declaration of his deity. This is Jesus saying, I am not just man. I am not like you in the sense that I'm only a man. I am man, but I'm also God because I am from above. I don't have an origin as you do being created. I am God. I have, I've always been. And so he's making a distinction between our origin, our creation, where we started, what we're made of, and who he is. And again, this is a clear declaration of div divinity. So uh, here we see this distinction is important. Why? Because as the Old Testament makes clear, this division between us and God is due to our sin. So what bridges the gap? What makes the, the created being from beneath who is sinful and wicked? What allows us to go where Jesus goes? What allows us to enter into the Father's presence? Go ahead. Well, how do I get there? How do I bridge that gap? 
Right. Yes. So the opposite of verse 24, it ends with what? The reason you die in your sins says, for if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. So if I don't believe that he is who he says he is, then I will die in my sins. If I believe, then seemingly I can now bridge that gap and be with him. Also, you want to note in the original when it says, if you believe not that I am he, the word he was given for clarity. It's actually Jesus saying, if you believe not that I am. Now again, is Jesus just declaring that he is? Why does, it, why does it matter so much that he says, you need to believe that I am? What was he referring to there? Yeah, not only the son of God, he's God, right? I am the name of God. This is the name that God spoke from the burning bush, right? Who do I say sent me? Tell him the I am of I am sent you, that the self-sustaining one. This is the voice of God. This is the name of God. And so when he says, if you don't believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And where I go, you cannot go. See, salvation is not just saying, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I ask him to be my savior. There has to be a recognition of who Jesus is. We have to understand that it's not just a man that died for us. It is the God man, the Messiah, Christ Jesus, who died for us. God in flesh died for us. We have to recognize that and acknowledge that as part of the gospel. So again, in the original language, the word he that follows I am in verse 24 was added. Jesus was saying, believe that I am the name of almighty God. Believing Christ is God who died for our sins on the cross is the heart of the gospel. And ultimately the gospel is the great spiritual transaction. There's a great exchange that takes place when we receive the gospel. If I don't believe, what does he say in John 8? I will die in my sins. If I do believe, I still die physically. We, we all will, right? The difference is, in Christ, I die in Christ. Without Christ, I die in my sins. And that's the exchange. When I believe that he is the great I am, that he died on the cross for my sins, I still die physically, but now instead of dying in my sins, I die in Christ. So my position has changed for all of eternity because of what Christ did for me. And it's based in him and our belief in that. So we see here that Jesus makes it clear that where he goes, we cannot go naturally. We need to believe. But also we see in the next couple of verses that Jesus is the son of man, the Messiah. Again, making a declaration of his identity, his mission, and our need of forgiveness. So what is his identity? He is the I am. What is his mission? What is the mission of Christ that we read about in this passage? It's implied more than clearly stated. Why did Jesus come? Do we see anything in John 8 so far that tells us why he came? Yes. So that we would not have to die in our sins. That there was another option. And what is the option? He's telling them, basically, you need to believe in me. So who is the, what is the identity of Christ? He is God. He is I am. What is the mission of Christ? To believe in him that we would not have to die in our sins. And the need of forgiveness is clearly stated in just the first few verses. So again, he's speaking to Jews. 
who think they're righteous, who think they're good, and he is instantly calling them out and reminding them, no, no, he doesn't talk about their righteousness. He doesn't talk about Abraham. He doesn't talk about any of that. He just assumes and states, because it's fact, you're going to die in your sins. That's horribly offensive to a Jewish person who believes they're keeping the law. Remember the rich young ruler? Sell it, keep the law. If you keep the law, you'll be fine. And the guy goes, what? I, I've done that since I was a kid. I'm not sinful. I've kept the law. Again, there's a lot of self-righteousness that Jesus is breaking down. So here in verses 25 through 28, let's read that together. And then we're actually going to go kind of back up to 26 and read through verse 30 at the end. So we'll kind of jump around a little bit. Verses 25 through 28, if I can get another volunteer that would like to read those couple of verses for us. Verses 25 through 28, who'd like to read that for us? Kelsey, awesome, thank you. So Jesus makes a statement here in verse, um, the passage here, he says in verse 28, when you have lifted up the son of man. So they asked the question in verse 25, who are you? And he says, I'm the same person I've been telling you I was since the beginning. Then in verse 28, he actually gives himself a name, the son of man. And so if you want to jot this down, you can, if you want to highlight or circle son of man there in verse 28. Um, they asked Jesus, who are you? Jesus says, and I love this, the same person I've been saying I am all along. If you would have listened is basically what he's saying. If you wanted to know who I was, all you had to do was listen. Remember we talked about parables last week and I said, what was the point of a parable was to get the listener to listen, to be intent. And I feel like Jesus would do parables in our lives today. I believe Jesus would teach with parables in our culture today, because I think we have a lot of churches that are full of a lot of people that seem like they're listening. But in our church culture in America today, there's a lot of people that are just there, right? They're just, they're just present. But are they really engaging? Are they really intently wanting to know what is Jesus actually saying? And so again, here, they said, who are you? Notice how they asked the question, who are you? After he said, I am. And I've always wondered if they were trying to say, did you really just say what I think you said? Because it sounds like you just said you're God and the son of God. Is that true? Did you really, who are you really? Then he goes on to say, well, I've told you who I am. I've been saying it since the beginning. Under that part, when it says that in uh, verse 25, from the beginning, I just put down the message never changed. The message never changed. It was always the same thing. If they would listen, they would have learned. The phrase son of man, and we mentioned that already in verse 28. Uh, son of man, Jesus is referred to rather as the son of man 88 times. In the New Testament, 88 times Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. In fact, Son of Man is the primary title Jesus used when referring to himself. So when Jesus spoke of himself, he said, I am the Son of Man or the Son of Man directly. That's the title that he gave himself primarily. The title reflects some key implications for Christ. It was a title of humanity. 
So it's a title of humanity, a title of humility, and deity. So it's a title of humanity, humility, and deity. It's also a fulfillment of prophecy. So this title, Son of Man, it's a title of humanity, humility, deity, and fulfillment of prophecy. Other titles for Christ, such as Son of God, are overt in their focus on his deity. Son of Man, in contrast, focuses on the humanity of Christ as the primary focus. It's, again, highlighting that he is the God-man. He is not a son of man, as we would be. He is the son of man. He is the one virgin-born. Also in that phrase, verse 28, we see this idea that, that he's going to sacrifice himself. And this is where the Jews were confused. But when you read in the context of what we're talking about here, he says that I'm going to go away. And they said, well, he's going to kill himself. Now, Jesus didn't commit suicide on the cross. He sacrificed himself on the cross. He willingly laid down his life and allowed his life to be taken by those that would take it. And when he did that, when he sacrificed himself on the cross for our sins, he then is lifted up. And so the phrase lifted up, what do we think of when we think of that lifted up in relation to the cross? Okay, so the actual physical act of raising the cross up for all to see. Remember, Jesus did not die quietly and secretively. He died publicly for any to see, all to believe. What comes to our mind when we think about that idea of being lifted up? And we've been ta- we talked about this even on, I think it was Wednesday nights, going through Exodus and kind of Old Testament stuff. But what's, what's usually talked about in this moment when we talk about something being lifted up like the cross? Old Testament story. the brass or brazen serpent. Yep. They were bit, right? And they had to look to the brazen serpent to be healed. Some looked, some didn't, which I always find really amazing. You can jot it down. Uh, Numbers chapter 21, 6 through 9. Numbers 21, 6 through 9. We think about that idea that they were needed to look to the serpent, look to the brazen serpent to be healed. The idea of lift, looking to the cross, looking up to what was lifted up. However, this idea of lifted up has a dual meaning. So it is referring to the actual act of being lifted up, the cross being raised up for all to see, and a similar idea to what we see in Numbers. But the other aspect of this is speaking to the glory of Christ, the glory being displayed, that he is lifted up. You can jot down Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 speaks to the idea of him being glorified or lifted up. That when Christ died on the cross, he was physically raised up, and he also is glorified or exalted by the Father. So we see this relationship between Christ and the Father being spoken of here as well. Now, when we move into this last few verses, uh, in verse 26, he talks about having many things to say and to judge of you. And again, that idea of judging is very important. Uh, Christ is the judge, right? I mean, it's amazing. The one who could judge us for our sins died in our place for our sins, and those who receive Christ will not be judged unto eternal life, because that's settled and sealed in Christ, but we will judge, he will judge our works. But remember, it's Christ also who judges those who are apart from Christ, those who are wicked and sinful. This is why he can say, you are in your sins and you will die in your sins. That's the judgment. I've already made that judgment on you. John says also that those who haven't believed, 
or who have believed rather, aren't condemned, but those who haven't believed are condemned already. Because God can definitively make those judgments. And again, he's saying that there's going to be more judgment. I'm going to judge you at some point in the future. But then he says this, but then he that sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. What's the mission of Christ? To speak the words of the Father. To speak truth. Now in verse 27, it says, They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. This is John giving some kind of background here. John is saying they didn't get it. They're not picking up that this is referring to the Father. And then in verse 28, Then said Jesus unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am. Remember, take off the he part. I am. And that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. So in verses 26 through 30, we're going to see that Jesus was dependent upon the Father. Jesus was dependent upon the Father. Look at verse 29 and then verse 30. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Now, we already read again those verses 26, 27, and 28. But we're going to unpack this a little bit, that Jesus was dependent upon the Father. Just curious, in verses 26 through 30, is there anything in there that strikes you as, when you read it, you just kind of think, like, that doesn't sound right to me. Because there's something in here that when I was reading through the first time, I, I put a little question mark, like, I know, I think I know what it means, or I know, I think I know what it's referring to, but I, it doesn't sound right to me. Anything in verses 26 through 30 that maybe give you pause? Anything jump out to anyone? Was that a hand raise? I don't know if you're just like giving glory to God, like mm, he's a man. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Keith, I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you, Keith. Lazy eye joke. Ha <laughs> ha, those never get old. Uh, yeah, yeah. When I was reading that, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Time out. He's, he's God. He's the son of God. He doesn't need to be taught anything. Okay, so that caused, gave me a little bit of pause. Um, but what could be, what's being referred to here? Why did Jesus have to have the Father teach him something if he's God? Because he's, okay, because he's also man. So you're saying that once he became incarnate, once he took on flesh, now he's referring to the Father teaching him? Okay, as the God-man? Any other thoughts on that? A reference you can write down that may give you a similar pause would be Luke chapter 2, verse 52. This is where it talked about Jesus growing in knowledge and stature. And we pause that and we think, well, how can Jesus, who is God, grow in knowledge? Why does Jesus need to be taught anything? It's similar to what Sandra said, Jesus took on flesh 
and according to Hebrews chapter 2, was made a little lower than the angels. Now, he's still God, still divine, still, still deity. But when he took on flesh, what did Jesus do as a demonstration of taking on flesh to be the one who would die on the cross? What did Jesus lay aside? Yeah, his, his attributes, right? He still possessed them. He voluntarily laid them aside. Philippians 2 speaks about this. So when he took on flesh, he limited himself of his own choosing. But also we see here a little bit of a window into the relationship in the Trinity. Remember, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all equal as God, but different persons with different roles and responsibilities. So Jesus demonstrates what here? Submission to the Father. So Jesus submits to the Father and the Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. Remember, because Jesus says, my Father will send the Spirit, I will send the Spirit. So the Spirit is dependent upon the Father and the Son. And the Spirit's job is to what? Point us to Christ, not to himself, but to Christ. So there's dependence from the Spirit to the Father and to the Son. The Son is dependent upon the Father. And we see this dynamic working out all through Scripture. This is why Jesus says in verse 29, For I do always those things that please him. There's a a desire to please the Father, to please God the Father. So in this this dynamic of the Trinity and these unique roles and responsibilities, the son is submissive to the father. And as such, because he limited himself, he is saying, I needed to be taught by the father. This is Jesus limiting himself and depending upon the father. So the father would then in turn teach him and guide him and lead him. And we see this often. He says, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me. He's saying, I laid that down, and I now am dependent upon the Father. This is why Jesus performed miracles, not in his own power at some times, but in the power of the Spirit. Remember the great moment where the Pharisees said, you just did that in the power of Satan. And Jesus rebuked them because they were blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So Jesus didn't do that in his own power. He did that in the power of the Spirit. Now, does Jesus demonstrate his own attributes and his own deity at times? Yes, when it fits the will of the Father. Ephesians chapter 1 is a great passage for this as well. We see the Father's will, the Son's submission, and the Spirit's sealing. We see all of those things happening in Ephesians 1 verses 1 through about verse 14. So we see this dynamic playing out here. So it sounds weird to us, but remember, this is Jesus fulfilling the will of the Father for the salvation of mankind. So he's dependent upon the Father. That's kind of what we're seeing here. Um, Let me make sure I didn't skip something here. Okay. Uh, In everything Christ did, he pleased the Father. Uh, This is made known. Uh, What's a moment that we can see in Scripture that Jesus pleased the Father? There's two moments that jumped out to me. But give me a couple moments where Jesus pleased the Father and we were able to know that it pleased the Father. Yeah, the baptism of Christ. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Another moment that we know the father was pleased by the son and what the son had done. Oh. Well, he died on the cross and the father was pleased by that because it fulfilled the will of God. So how do we know that the father was pleased by the crucifixion and the sacrifice of Christ? 
Okay, the curtain's part of that, yeah. I would say that, what was that? Oh, Renee pointed back there, so. Okay, he's crying out to the Father. Which was... So, so I would say wrapping all of that up in also just the resurrection of Christ. The, the way we know the sacrifice of Christ was received because he rose again. And the Father was pleased in the cross, therefore he rose Jesus from the dead and glorified the Son, exalted the Son, as Philippians 2 talks about. So those are, to me, the two key moments, the beginning of the ministry of Christ with the baptism and the end, if you will, of the ministry of Christ as far as on earth Physically, the baptism of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Both evidence of the Father being well pleased with the Son. Jesus cried out, it is finished, when he was on the cross, showing that he had completed the work the Father sent him to do. So what was the work that Jesus was sent to do? That work was living a sinless life, sacrificing himself on the cross, shedding his blood for the remission of sins, as well as selecting disciples, training them, and sending them out into the world to teach others to observe all things Jesus taught them, to baptize those that believe and plant the church. These disciples would also glorify the Father through the Son as the Son glorified the Father. So when Jesus said, it is finished, he had not resurrected yet. And we have to get this. I know what people mean when they say, well, our sin is is." Settled in Christ, because he said it is finished. Yes, the sin has been paid for by the cross, but our salvation is not secured in only the death of Christ. It is secured in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Had Jesus died and never rose again, we'd still be in our sins, according to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians. So we need the resurrection. So the work that he was talking about was not the fulfillment of salvation, because that was not completed yet. Right? He hadn't rose from the dead yet. So what was he saying when he said, it is finished. I have done what the Father sent me to do. It's everything up to that point. It's a sinless life. It's dependence on the Father. It's selecting, training, and sending disciples. It's giving the spirit to the disciples that they might go and plant the church. And it's training them and teaching them. And all that he did and dying on the cross for our sins was the work that he said to the Father, it is finished. I have done everything you've asked me to do. And he did it, by the way, according to Hebrews, joyfully. And he was buried in a tomb. And the father, being well pleased, rose Jesus from the dead. And at that moment, our salvation is secure. And now we can say with confidence, I am in Christ and I have eternal life. Again, the father and the son are one. And the father was always with the son. Praise the Lord that Jesus is always with us through the spirit. So we can do the work that Christ has given us to do. That we will say, as Paul said, remember, what did Paul say at the end of his life? I have ran my course. I have finished my race. I've done the work that you've called me to do. In a similar way, he's showing that Christ-like submission to the Lord. He's saying, I've done this. I've done what you asked me to do. And now I'm giving my, my life over to you. I'm willing to die for this faith. This is what Jesus meant when he said, greater works than these you will do in John fourteen twelve. It is not the quality of the work, but the quantity or amount of the work that we will do through the Spirit indwelling the body of Christ all over the world. And so I love this passage because it clearly defines the identity of Christ, the mission of Christ, and our desperate need for forgiveness from Christ. And so um, 703, so we're going to finish up and close. But any other comments, questions, or thoughts on this passage?
Yes, and I agree 100%. Now, I also, when I was reading that, I made a note on my paper that it doesn't say all believed. And I love that it says many did, but I, I was struck for a moment to think, here's the Son of God who just clearly taught them, you either die in your sins and sent away from me, or you're with me in eternity. And all you have to do is believe. And many believed, and praise God, many did. But this is Jesus Christ. You would think if they're going to believe, it's at his word. But even when Christ was preaching, there were some that turned away in disbelief. And to me, that really kind of spoke to me that, man, when we share our faith, there will be many that may believe. And praise God that they do. But don't ever get discouraged when you share your faith and someone doesn't believe. Because if they wouldn't listen to the words of Christ when he spoke them and doing the signs and wonders that he did, we should not be surprised that they would turn away from us in disbelief and say, no, I just can't believe that. And so, yeah, absolutely. I love that, that many believed. And I love, they didn't understand at first, but they had to put the work in and they had to listen and think it through and come to the point of belief and saving faith. And so what a blessing. Absolutely. Any other comments, questions, or thoughts? All right. Well, let me also say, that if there is a passage that, because um, like I said, I, I really have no plan as far as how many more of these we're going to do. Um, I just, every week I just ask the Lord, okay, Lord, is there a verse passage that I can go through this week? And if he lays one on my heart, then we'll do that. Um, but if there's a passage that you would like to go through, ideally a shorter passage, um, 10 to 15 verses would probably be the max uh, that you would like to break apart to study that you have questions on. Let me know ahead of time, and we can do similar. We can just kind of hand it out, work it through, and break apart God's word that we might grow in our understanding. So let's pray, and we'll let you guys be dismissed. Father, we do thank you, Lord, so much for this evening. And Lord, just uh, thank you, Lord, that you allow us to believe, to put our faith and trust in you, that we can come to an understanding, Lord, by your grace, to believe that you are who you say you are, that you are the I am, that your identity doesn't change. And Lord, that the, the same decision must be made in our lives today. We either believe and trust in you and go where you go for eternity, which we know is a place of great joy and peace in your heaven, or we die in our sins and we're separated from you for all eternity. Lord, you are so gracious and so loving to to be so honest with us. And Lord, I know we live in a world, in a church culture that is so unwilling to make statements like that, to boldly declare there is only one of two outcomes for all of eternity. It's either separation from you in a place called hell, or it's with you in your heaven. We want to make it inclusive. We want to change it, make it more gray and not so black and white. And yet, Lord, you loved us enough to tell us the truth. And I pray that we would take that to heart as we share our faith with others, that we would desire to have that same boldness. It's not a popular message. It's never been a popular message. Even then, only a handful, only many believed, not all believed, but many did. And so I pray that as we share our faith, even though it's not popular, that many will believe. That right here in, North, or in Goodland Township, Emily City and the surrounding communities, that by the preaching of the gospel, 
a desire to believe that you are who you say you are, that many will believe, that many would come to faith. Lord, it may not be all, but we're praying for an increase, that you would glorify your name. Thank you, Father, for all that you do. We pray that you just give us a great week ahead as we go into our areas of influence, whether it be school or work. Lord, I lift up our students here tonight. Lord, I pray that you'd give them wisdom and guidance as they go into their homes, into their communities, into their schools, workplaces, wherever they might be doing this week, that they'd be bold for you, declaring the gospel without fear of what others think, but willing to believe to the point of action, to say and speak out. Lord, for the adults in the room, that as we go through our week, as we have conversations and opportunities, I pray that we'd be just as bold. And so, Father, again, thank you for all of this. Bless now we ask this, the event to follow for the students, their snack night. And Lord, just give us a great week ahead, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.